This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Welcome everybody to the session. So uh, you've got Neil and uh, Neil here, so double the fun. Um, so I'll be, I'll be going first. And... Um, the session today, let's keep it interactive. So we've been on the outcomes-based system for, I think it's about three years now, and we still keep getting a lot of questions and so on. So um, what we thought might be an in interesting session today is that um, I'll give you a very brief overview of the outcomes-based CPD. And then we've actually got FCA here. So FCA kindly volunteered to be questioned today, and uh, I must say um, he really embraced the outcomes-based uh, CPD system, so uh, I think uh, you'll find what he's got to say quite useful, and uh, I think it would be better if we, as we go, you can ask your questions, and that way we can, we can address it uh, as we go, but at the end there will also be quite a bit of time left, I think, for, for questions. So... Um, so outcomes by CPD, we're actually seeing a lot of professional organizations uh, moving towards outcomes by CPD. We're actually seeing other actuarial associations also moving towards outcomes by CPD. I see Ben also just moved in or, or um, came to the session now. So the IFOA, they're also piloting outcomes by CPD with some of their organizations, which is part of their quality uh, assurance program. So... It really seems like outcomes by CPD is the way that CPD will be, be done in future. And I know there's quite a few of us that's still on, on hours-based CPD and with the new phase regulations that's coming in, they require hours and so on, but there are ways that we can incorporate that into to, uh, our uh, CPD. And if there's specific questions on, on that, you can also uh, ask me about that. So, uh, if you were at the previous session, uh, you probably heard um, Peter speak about uh, our professional promise. Um, he's got a gift of making something short longer. Uh, I'm the other way around, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this. But um, basically, why we do, do CPD is, is that we can keep our professional promise, and this, that's built on, on the the three strands, and, and which is also linked with the IAA's uh, professional framework. And it's quite intuitive what we actually promise to our clients or our employers, is that we will offer a service that's specialist and up-to-date, so you actually need to do or need to know the technical stuff um, that you are actually producing. Then the second way to, to conduct your work in an ethical manner and thirdly, that you're subject to professional oversight. So I think it's, it's, it's uh, quite an in, intuitive uh, a promise and, and why we, we do CPD. So I think, in, and why we've also moved to, to outcomes-based CPD, obviously, depending on what role you're in, it will be very uh, unique to your own, own, own role. And, and that's what outcomes-based CPD actually allows you. It allows you to tailor your professional development to your specific role. And as we talk to FCA later, 
I think you'll you'll get the you'll get the gist of that. So just briefly on the process, maybe just by a show of hands, how many here are on the outcomes based CBD system? Oh, we've got quite a few believers here in the room. Thank you for that, Anne. Um, so uh, yeah, just briefly on how the process works. So we're all in some sort of a professional role here. Yeah? So you write down basically what your role is, your responsibilities, and actually uh, possible future roles. Then you identify your areas of development. You actually decide what you're going to do. So for instance, public speaking is uh, something that you want to improve. You say you're going to join Toastmasters or you're going to uh, actually decide to present at a, as a session or something like that. And then you've got your development goals, you've got your development activities. And then you actually, throughout the year, you actually do what you set out to do. And then you actually speak with another professional person. It can be an actuary. It doesn't necessarily need to be an actuary. And that's where the process of diffraction takes place. So Mickey Lauder came up with the word diffraction. Uh, I would have probably just called it a chat with a professional. But I'm an English second language speaker. So, um, yeah, so it's a very intuitive process. Decide what you're going to do, you do it, and then you reflect uh, on that. So, um, I'm actually now going to start asking questions uh, to FCA. Uh, but before that, maybe on the process and so on, are there any, any questions before we, we go on to interrogate uh, FCA a bit? Not. Oh, there's one. Tim? Can we please get a mic, the guy with the long beard there at the back? Thanks. Thanks, Neil. Um, I, I think that this process is very positive. Um, the outcome-based CPD, I think, recognizes the fact that uh, actuaries are professionals and should take ownership of this process. Um, the question I do have is, what are your thoughts on just ensuring some kind of consistent standard uh, between everyone who follows this approach? Um, I think what might be quite useful is to uh, implement some kind of feedback process where, um, uh, where we can just somehow bring uh, some, some standard through the, through the whole process. Uh, can you just comment on that? Yeah, so, um, so we've got a, a CPD committee which is part of the Professional Matters Board and uh, the CPD committee is in the process of starting interviews with people on the outcomes by CPD just to get their feedback to get through the, uh, go through the development plan with them, ask them the type of question that I'll be asking FCNR. So, um, yeah, so we've got a, a process that we'll, we, we are in the process of implementing. And on that, I'm just reminding myself now, we're actually looking for members of the CPD committee. So if you want to join that committee, I'll be here afterwards. And, uh, yeah, if you put up your hand, you get the job. Um, so thanks for that, uh, Tim. Okay, so the first question for FCA, so I'm going to read it from there. Did you find it challenging coming up with your development plan and how did you go about determining your development goals? So that's your question, FCA, and yes, FCA's uh, development plan is very personal. That's why the font is very small, so you're not supposed to, to be able to read it if you uh, wanted to. But uh, FCA, the floor is yours. 
cool. Uh, I'll just clarify. I was sort of volunteered the same way Tim was just volunteered. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's usually how you get volunteered. So, <laughs> so uh, the first time I had to form a development plan was difficult for me, but this was back when I just started at Deloitte, you know, how many of a years ago that was. Um, and that was more guided around sort of your KPIs at the organization, and that's where it started. But moving from that through the various stages to where the CPD process is at the moment, that process wasn't difficult. So potentially when you do your first career development plan, it can be difficult, but as it's a process that's evolved over time from, from something a little different, it, it really was not that difficult. And because you've got your partner that you have a chat with, Cliff and I talk once a month or once every two months, to be honest. Um, and then we reflect to each other and we say, yeah, this makes sense, or have you thought about this aspect? Yeah. Okay, so it seems that was, initially it was a bit challenging, but once you get going, it's actually quite an intuitive, quite an intuitive process. Is there any questions for FCA on his development plan or how I went about it and so on? Not, so it seems like it's quite simple. So the second question, do you think the new CPD system is more or less onerous than the previous ours-based CPD system? Uh, it, it depends, right? So uh, I always say something's only expensive if you don't get the value out of it. So from my perspective, the old system, it was very sort of you had to go and figure out exactly how many hours you, had, you spent on which day and then try and think up something that you learned from a session, right? And you're actually just trying to check, do a checkbox exercise. Well, that's how I felt about it. Um, so from that perspective, I found that onerous because it, I didn't feel like I got a lot of benefit from that. That was just for somebody else to be able to monitor me. This system uh, we, we've adopted and, and I actually use it in terms of my own career planning. So it doesn't feel onerous because I get value out. Um, but I also think it is, even if you don't believe in it as I do, then it's still less onerous, I believe, than the old system. So yeah, and I think that's what we're trying to achieve through outcomes-based CPD. So I think in the past, and we probably still do, and I'm sometimes also guilty of that, but you get people sitting uh, in a session and they're doing the emails and so on, and they're just there for the sake of getting their CPD hours, but they don't necessarily learn anything. So I think what we actually want to drive is behavior where you focus on things where you want to develop and where you actually, where you actually learn stuff. So, so and this question I'm asking because I know he's got it right, but I'm going to ask it because we get a lot of questions on people asking us what format should they use for their development plan, what software should they use, and so on. Um, and currently it is, it is quite open, so whether you're using Excel or Word or, or so on to, to capture your, um, your, your CPD, but we are in the process of actually updating our whole CPD uh, website structure um, and where you'll then be able to, to also use that template for your development plan. And what we're also going to do, which I think is, is going to work uh, pretty well is at sessions we're going to have QR codes where people can then also scan uh, when they log in and then those hours will be automatically captured as well if you need hours or proof of hours for, for FECA phase purposes and so on which I think is, is going to be pretty neat. So FCA, do you use a tech platform to record your goals and activities? 
Uh, so or maybe I should ask what platform you use. <laughs> okay, so we all started off using the Excel template, and if you have about five or six different sessions with somebody about something, you're, you're, they tend to get quite full, and then it starts getting difficult to track where exactly you are, um, and then it's very separate from how you do your work planning. So uh, yes, we do use a tech platform. So we use it in the same way we approach our projects at work. So we use a tool called Trello, but there are loads of these lying around. Um, and it's effectively just a Kanban kind of setup. So you've got tasks that are to do, doing, or done. And you just log each one and you tag them with specific tags saying, well, it needs to be done by then, this person needs to do it, and so on. Uh, so because it's also integrated with how we do our jobs uh, in terms of I go across all of my cards due for the day and my CPD ones end up filtering in there. So then it becomes part, part of my workflow. So we chose this because it was easier to track your comments and so on. So if you open one up, you can see uh, we talked about this then and, then and then if somebody ever wants to know what did you talk about, is there evidence of you having your conversations, then it's there. Yeah, so, and for me that's very encouraging to hear because that's also one of the reasons why we decided to also follow the, the outcomes-based system because we wanted people to, to implement it with their workflow and with their performance systems at work. So if you've you've got a performance assessment with certain outputs that you need to achieve in your day-to-day -day job. If you can dovetail that with your, your professional development, that's, that's definitely a win for us and less admin, admin for members. So I think the, these are just other slides on how you actually use Jello. So, and obviously there's a lot of other platforms like that out there as well. So uh, the next question, do you think your development plan actually helps you to grow and become more effective? Uh, well, yeah, I, I do believe so. Um, I, I think the development plan, you should think of it not just in terms of the physical document or the platform that you see. A lot of your development plan is around that reflection process. We found, uh, Cliff and I found that particularly useful. So um, you can highlight, even if you come from two completely different universes, actually I think it helps if you're partners from a different area of the, of the profession. Um, then you, you help each other out and say, listen, but uh, have you, for example, um, looked at this professional guidance or have you thought about how this affects you, the company that you work in and, and that kind of stuff. So that, so that feedback process helps a lot in terms of shaping where you're trying to go. Okay. Yeah, so obviously that's, we didn't actually have a dry run beforehand, so it's an honest answer from uh, FCA. So, um, yeah, so it's, uh, for us it's great to hear that it is actually achieving the purpose that we, we set out uh, for it to achieve, and it's, it's not only an administrative chore. And then the, the next question, were you able to combine your CPD process with your performance management? You already said you were able to integrate it with your, with your normal workflow process, but were you able to, to integrate it with your performance management as well? Um, so, so while I was at Standard Bank, yes, I, I catered them to each other to work well together. Where we are as a startup now, it's now working on the idea of performance management yes. process. Okay, okay. <laughs> now the performance is the end of the P&L. How much <laughs> falls out of the end? Okay. Exactly. And um, the final question for you, before I open the floor for questions, uh, did the outcomes by CPD process help you to do your job? Well, it, I, I mean, it's sort of connected to the growth one, I suppose. Um, 
but yeah, definitely helped me do my job in terms of specifically just getting somebody else to have a look at what you're doing and what you're focusing on. For example, uh, at one point I was focusing a lot more on technical aspects rather than normative aspects. And then Cliff would have said, listen, just go have a look at this. And then going and looking at the normative stuff actually helped me complete the other piece of work. And I think as probably a technical professional, probably default to looking more at the, at the technical stuff. So I think having those three strands actually forces you to think how oh, you actually need to develop in the areas and become a more well-rounded uh, actually. Okay, so before I go into the feedback from, sorry, from uh, the survey that we ran, I think last year, are there any, any questions from the floor for uh, FCA or for myself? Or maybe even Neil, he's sitting here. Oh, there's a couple here in the, in the middle block and at the front. Arthur, he's never shy to ask a question. You can count on him. Hi, so two questions. If you opt into the outcomes-based CPD and you don't like it, can you opt back? Um, that's first question. Second question, if you had your plan set up and you realize you, know, you, were, you were going to focus on a specific area, but you got on a big project and you were in a completely different area, um, can you then change your, your CPD for the year or are you screwed? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it's uh, on the first question. Yes, you can. We actually, if if you're a new qualifier, after I can't remember the exact date now, but then you're actually forced to be on the outcomes-based system. But if you were on the hours-based, you decided to go to outcomes, and I want to switch back to, to hours. You can still do that, but we there will be, and that decision, that date hasn't been been finalised yet. But there will come a stage where everybody. Uh, will need to be on, on outcomes based. But like I mentioned earlier, you'll still be able to obviously um, get your hours down and so on if you need it for phase purposes and so on. And then on the second part of your question, uh, the, your development plan is a, it's a unique uh, dynamic document that's your own document. So if you happen to learn something new as you go, definitely that's how you develop professionally and so on, so you, you, you can do it. Uh, Neil, um, same question I asked you at the uh, colloquium. Um, what is happening in terms of allowing practicing certificate holders to migrate to um, outcomes-based? So um, we've actually made good progress, or by we, I mean the Life Insurance Committee. Um, so they've uh, develop the framework on how this uh, can be, 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 be worked into the, the practicing certificate process. They've sent their drafts to the Professional Matters Board for review and it's come back. So at the upcoming uh, Life Assurance Committee meeting within the next couple of week, weeks, that will be, should be finalized. And I think then we can use, try and use that as a template for the other, for the other areas as well. So with that, you'll, we'll send it out to membership also. Hi, uh, I was interested just to find out if you're seeing any knock-on implications to the sessional meetings and attendance at them. Um, I think they're obviously very useful sessions and I think at times members have used them to make up extra hours when they've been on the hours-based CPD. So I was interested to hear maybe from FCA if it's impacted on your thinking whether to attend a sessional meeting or not now that you're on outcomes-based 
And Neil, if you actually see anything more generally uh, uh, across the, the society as to the attendance there. If so, you can go first. I'm very uh, yeah. polite. So in terms of attending some of the sessionals, uh, I don't think it's really had that much of an impact. So I think you can get enough hours or whatever just mostly on the, um, on the convention and on sort of the online videos that you can watch and all of that stuff. So that never really was a reason for me to go to any of the sessionals. Uh, I tended to attend the ones that I found interesting, uh, but I do find myself on the wider fields kind of side of things anyway. So that gives me a very specific group that I can go to, uh, which also then means I try and go to the ones that are available. Uh, does that answer the question? Sorry, I can't see who's talking. So, ah, there we go. <laughs> Some sort of talking generally. So I think in general, um, there hasn't been an impact uh, on, on attendance of events. Uh, this convention, massive attendance, the biggest we've ever had. Our other seminars is also the attendance is more or less uh, the way it was and I think sessionals also the attendance has, has been quite uh, quite good. On, on session we're trying to also embrace technology so in the next year or so we'll probably do more webinars and so on but um, the, 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 all the seminars and sessionals, or most of them, the presentations are on the websites with audio recordings already where you can actually use it. But we have, a, I think the one thing that might actually implement or impact attendance of events is more the way that we market and communicate uh, rather than um, the outcomes by CPDR. Quick one. Um, is the scheme uh, appropriate for actuaries uh, that are in non-actual roles in terms of the development for their specific roles? Yeah, I, th I think this, this, uh, the outcomes-based CPD system is actually probably more useful for, for, for actuaries working in non-traditional non actuarial fields. So say, for instance, you... Uh, a board member and you need to do development and read King 3 or those start, um, upskill yourself in corporate governance and so on, then you can say, okay, but this is my role, I need to, to upskill myself on corporate governance and, and this is what I'm going to do. So I think because it's your own, uh, your own plan tailored to your own professional needs, it, it's definitely well suited to that. I think um, is a uh, Arthur still had a question here in the front, and then I think um, I'll hand over to Neil, and then after Neil's session, I think we'll we'll, we'll allow time for for more questions at the end again. Uh, thanks, Neil. Uh, I think my question has been asked already. I was asking about the practicing certificates, which is based on hours base. So within ESSA itself, you've already got two different systems, and until you get rid of the hours base for the practicing certificate you're going to have a problem getting the rest of us over. What are the proposals? Can you give us an idea of how practicing certificates will be based on outcomes-based CPD? So I think the, the key thing is on a practicing certificate, there's certain competence areas that that certificate actually certifies. So um, each of those competent uh, areas, actually you need development on them. And I can't remember if that's part of the proposal, but we were thinking also to make it mandatory to attend certain sessions. So implicitly, there will be those hours in that event. So for instance, the LAC seminar to make sure that you stay up to date 
with the latest, uh, the latest legislation and so on. But I think the key thing is the competence areas that we identified to make sure that you, you did uh, uh, development activities for those specific competence areas. Okay, so I'm quickly going to run through just the outcome of uh, the service. Some of you might have seen seen this. So we did a we ran a survey to to I think it was last year um, to all people on on the outcomes based system. So I'll just quickly run through the the outcomes of of the survey. So the, and I'll just randomly chose it was a longer survey, but I just randomly chose or not randomly. Uh, with a reason, just chose certain questions that I wanted to show the results for. So, on the the first question, did these steps include three, the three strands of the professional promise? And most people said they were actually able to to focus on all three areas. And like FC mentioned earlier, sometimes we tend to focus on the technical side and focusing on the normative and and uh, the organisational actually forces you to to uh, actually look at other areas of development. Often did you go through the cycle? Most people went through it annually uh, or quarterly, um, but I think it's probably better to go through it more regularly rather than on an annual basis. And uh, you're probably not surprised to see that the main technical development area highlighted by people on the system is regulation and legislation, so we've obviously been bombarded with a lot of regulatory change in the last couple of years. And uh, yeah, I wanted to say that earlier, what we're also doing is from the feedback we get from members, we can also know how to tailor our, our seminars and sessionals and so on. Um, so on the normative development areas, communication skills has been identified as one of the key areas for development. But I must say that events that I or the sessions I attended, the communication by ACTSIS was actually pretty, uh, yeah, pretty sound in my opinion. I don't know about this session. Um, on the organizational development areas, corporate governance was, uh, was one, and I think probably with all the corporate scandals and things coming out and so on, it's, if you just read the news on a daily basis, there's things coming out. Um, and then uh, the same question that I asked uh, FCA earlier, were you able to combine aspects of the new CPD process or your employer's performance management process? And a large proportion said fully and uh, quite a sizable proportion said to some extent. So it's good to see that it's actually being implemented with performance management processes uh, at the, the, the place of employment. So and then did the outcomes by the CPD system help you do your job? Also a large proportion saying fully and to some extent, which is very encouraging for us as a CPD committee. So I think we're running a bit short for time, so I'm going to give over to, to Neil. And uh, then if there's time at the end, we can probably just look at uh, some more questions and go through some of the, the comments. Right, oh, so I'll probably need to do a short introduction on you, Neil. I, didn't, I don't have a bio of you to, to read, but Neil's a legend of the profession and he's been the CEO of uh, Robson Savage for quite a number of years. And you can see I'm Neil Refined and he's Neil Savage. So, um, yeah. My attempt at an actuarial joke.
Right. Thanks, Neil. I don't think I've ever been called a legend uh, before, but in the previous session I learned that I'm on, on the uh, older end of the spectrum, it would seem, as a baby boomer. So, uh, yeah. I've also got a, I, I realize now, in fact, that I, I didn't have time or the ability to change it. I've got one photograph in my presentation that is, that is so going to date me uh, when we get there. So I'm sure you'll, you'll spot that when it comes along. Um, the, thanks, Neil. Uh, my name is Neil. Uh, we're not uh, to be confused. We spell our names completely differently, so there's no possibility of confusion there. Yeah, okay, right, so they've called up the... I was asked if I could just do a, a quick update on market conduct, and I think particularly with reference to uh, a huge amount of regulatory development. So just to talk about market conduct and the profession, I'm against the backdrop of what's happening in, in the regulatory space. I've got a short agenda that I'll, I'll put up here for you. We'll just very quickly, um, I'd like to give you some background on how we end up where we are. I think we, we forget there's actually a long pattern and a trend to the, the regulatory developments. I'll just give you a bit of background on that. Um, maybe we should just define what is market conduct. I think we should try and get on the same page with that. I'll give you the definition that we use in the market conduct committee so you can see what, what we're talking about there. Then in order to try and talk about the way forward and where the profession goes with the, the developments, uh, I think it's maybe quite interesting to look backwards a bit and just, tr just look at an example of what, what can happen in the... Uh, the market conduct space, and, and particularly, in a way, kind of the theme, and it, it, it picks up very much on the, the presidential address that we heard a short while ago, is the need to change, and very, very importantly, uh, the need not to automatically carry on what we're doing uh, that, that we've always done in the past. So I've got a fairly common, of, uh, quite a well-known example from my own particular practice area, but hopefully it'll frame uh, some of the issues that that, that we face. And then I'll just conclude with a few final thoughts and, and closing remarks. And then, yes, hopefully we'll get time for more questions, either on, on that presentation or, or on this one too. Right, so where, where does it all come from? The, you might remember the Treating Customers Fairly initiative, which started, uh, I'm not sure if anybody can guess exactly when that did start. Um, I went back and looked through all the papers and everything, and April 2010, so that was just before uh, a different World Cup took place. We had the Treating Customers Fairly, uh, the first discussion paper that was issued by what was then the, the Financial Services Board. That immediately tells you, you know, sitting here nine and a half years later, this has been quite a process that we've been through, and, and that is, in fact, still, still underway. Uh, that was followed up uh, sometime later, uh, in March 2011. Uh, there was a position paper put out uh, called the Roadmap, uh, rather ambitiously. And this was now following on from the initial sort of position paper. This was now outlining the way that this process would unfold. And out of interest, that's the first time that we came across the six uh, what are called fairness outcomes of TCF. I won't go through them uh, here in the interest of time. And that was kind of like there were some pillars of treating customers fairly and then 
then fairness outcomes were, de were defined there. Uh, it, to be honest with you, it, a lot of it's common sense. It's the sort of things that you would expect companies to be doing um, if they want to be doing treating customers fairly. I think there was some research done with, uh, oops, pushing the wrong button. Did anything happen? No, okay. There's a, there's a button here that does nothing, I've just discovered. Um, there was then some research done, I think, to test the readiness of firms and companies uh, for treating customers fairly. There was an online assessment that you could do, and I think that led in 2013, the end of 2013, to a baseline study report. That makes a heck of a lot of sense, because obviously if you're going to embark on regulatory changes, uh, it makes a lot of sense to have uh, a starting point that you've measured against which then presumably at some later stage you can come back and, and measure what happened from there. Then the, the last of this kind of strain of stuff came through. There, there was a, a discussion document or a position put out on uh, complaint mechanisms. This was done in 2014, uh, again towards the end of 2014 and this was discussing complaints procedures. Now, while all that was going on, there was talk in the background, you've all heard of the, the Twin Peaks uh, initiative, and I think this was the, the overarching thrust of where the regulatory framework was going. And Twin Peaks, just to remind you, was the, the idea that you have these two uh, peaks or pillars of, of, um, of regulatory uh, areas, and the one would be uh, what's called prudential oversight. So that would be, you know, checking that your banks are properly capitalized and checking that your insurers are properly capitalized for the risks that they're taking. They can meet their claims and so on. So it's about the, the systemic um, pr pr prudential oversight of the financial sector. The other part of Twin Peaks is then the, the market conduct side. So now you can see what happened. We reached a point there where Twin Peaks was coming along and the whole treating customers fairly side of things would feed into um, the, the market conduct side of the Twin Peaks uh, development. And then starting two years ago, uh, a long list of regulatory developments that is still very much underway. We got the Financial Sector Regulation Act in 2017, uh, quite a substantial piece of legislation. And this was really the the, where, where that's for example where the FSCA was created and where prudential authority was put onto the, the Reserve Bank for some things, not for others. Some, some things stayed behind it at FSCA. FSCA was the remodeled Financial Services Board and so on. So that was the first big piece of enabling legislation that came along. But it, it, it kind of created the structures and um, talked conceptually about some of the powers without necessarily... Uh, giving those powers yet or, or, or quantifying exactly what they would be. Um, so then we got the uh, Financial Sector Conduct Authority, and I've underlined the word conduct there. So that's the market conduct strand of this coming through, and that was in April 2018. So the uh, Financial Sector Conduct Authority was, was created then. Interestingly, I mean, created from the FSR Act, but not necessarily yet with, with particular powers, and I think it's something that the FSCA grappled with was how to operate while other legislation was still coming through. So then we get the conduct of financial, this is the next big step of this, the conduct of financial institutions. I mean, obviously it'll become an act at some stage, but it's still a bill at this stage. And there was a draft put, put out, there was a comment, sec, uh, comment period uh, closed earlier this year. 
I think uh, from what I've heard, the, the volume of input on the bill, the draft bill was, was massive, and I, I think the just taking, taking the comments to pieces, trying to understand it all, and then redraft that into a second version of the, the bill has taken a lot longer than was expected. So we're still expecting another version of the bill to come out for, for further comment at some stage. And, and if you look through that piece of draft legislation, what will eventually become legislation, um, it's very uh, much the, the what, what the, f the, the authorities can actually do and gives them the powers to do all of the things that they, they will be doing going forward. The Twin Peaks legislation, looking through it, I think there's a whole welter of other things going on in the background. I've just got a couple of examples here. Um, we've got the conduct standards. I think we've already had a conduct standard uh, issued by, by the FSCA. And lots of other regulatory instruments. I mean, I think we've seen this year coming through sort of guidance notes, regulatory comments on this and that. So there's a lot of these documents now starting to appear on the FISCA website. Um, very useful in many cases, giving clarity to certain aspects of legislation. Uh, but not always law. Remember, some of these don't have any effect in law. They're just opinions and views um, of the regulatory authorities. We've got things like the conduct of business returns, uh, which I think the insurance companies are doing already. Um, that's been quite a process, I think, to get that up and, up and running. Uh, we've got the retail distribution review going on. And just in general, I mean, it's like a tsunami of stuff uh, that, that's coming through. We sit uh, on the Market Conduct Committee and just it's like drowning in this never-ending stream. You've got, uh, while, while this is going on, you've got the revised policyholder protection rules. You've got changes to phase. I suppose you've got the protection of personal information stuff going on separately. There's just a, a, a massive amount of legislation coming through on, on, on all of this. But the thread running through it all is that it's obviously to do with market conduct. So that then leads to the question, what exactly is market conduct? So we've got a working definition here, which I'll, I'll put up. So market conduct is in relation to any entity, and we've got to be careful what we mean by an entity. An entity could be a, a company, an insurance company, an asset management company. Um, it could be um, a, a sort of a, a, a anything created by law, like a, a retirement fund, for example, which is registered in law. It exists, I mean, so a retirement fund has got customers, which is their, their members. Um, any entity that operates in the delivery of financial services to any consumer in, in any form. So that's what an entity would be. So in relation to an entity, um, market conduct relates to the pattern of behavior of that entity. So this is about the conduct of the the providers, the, 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 the companies, in executing is the product design, it's the pricing of the product, and it's the promotion strategies that, that you adopt uh, with, with regard to your product. And critically, a very important aspect of this is that it's not just, I mean, that stuff there so far is all about preparing to get a product out there into the market. Um, this endures right the way through the life cycle of the product. So it's at the development stage, the sales stage, uh, the post-sales stage, right the way through to the time when that product has finally run its course and, and ceases to be. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about market conduct. Right, I'd like to give you 
an example of the kind of challenge that I think we face as an industry. Um, I'm going to focus this example on my particular practice area, uh, if you bear with me while we go through that. And uh, it's a sort of fairly typical situation in, in the world of group benefits, where we're just going to imagine you've got a group scheme with some life cover, so everybody in the scheme has got four times salary life cover, let's say. Um, there's a thing called a free cover limit in group business. It's the amount of cover you get before you would, or the amount of cover you, you can be entitled to before you'd have to go and, and give medical evidence to try and get the cover above that limit. And let's imagine the premium is, is 1%. As they say in all the uh, talks, the, the detail is not the issue. Uh, the principle is, is the key here. And then this is the actuarial convention, and I thought I must put up some numbers. Let's uh, get our teeth into some numbers here. So here's a table, and I'm going to build up some examples here for you, and you can see as we go down the column. So I've got a, a range of people who are now on the receiving end of this product. Okay, so this is, this is the product that they, they all happen to be in. So here's a, a member there who's got a particular salary, uh, four times which is exactly equal to 5.8 million. Um, so this member has cover of 5.8 million. That's what this, the formula gives. They're not over the free cover limit, so they're accepted for their full cover. Uh, there's no question of them doing any medicals. They pay a premium of 1% of 1.45 million. Divide by 12, that comes out at 1,200 rand a month. So that's their, their premium for their cover of 5.8 million. Uh, not far from member A, sitting at the next desk perhaps, is member B, uh, who's got slightly different details. Member B's got a higher salary, a nice salary there. Four times that would give you 8 million rand of, of potential cover. Member B is immediately accepted and covered for 5.8 million. That's how free covers work. And member B, after thinking it through and for, for whatever reasons, decides not to go for the medicals. So is capped at the 5.8 million. So member B has got 5.8 million of cover. Uh, the premium payable every month is 1% of 2 million divided by 12, and that comes out at uh, ominously devilish number, 1666.67. That wasn't deliberately chosen to get that answer. Okay, another member, very similar situation. In fact, it looks identical to member B, except uh, member C goes for their, their medicals, uh, member C, however, gets the, the sad news that after doing the medicals, the cover has been declined. So member C is also limited to 5.8 million rand of cover, though being entitled to more. And uh, they pay the same premium, the 1666 premium. Member D, you might be able to predict, is not unlike the previous three, the two. Um, 8 million of potential cover. Member D goes for the medicals uh, and lo and behold is accepted for the full cover. Now has 8 million rand of cover and uh, post the medicals and pays a premium of one triple six. And you can see where this is headed, where the, where the problem is going to come. Remember, we're talking about treating customers fairly. We're talking about designing products uh, that are priced properly, that make sense to the, the ultimate consumer. So what, what could go wrong, as I think the, the advert famously says? We've got some interesting situations on that slide there. So we've got two, two members who've got the same cover, but they've got different premiums. So just going back to that, the two members there covered for 5.8 million, 
uh, one member is paying close to 40% more uh, for exactly the same amount of cover. We've got uh, two members with different cover but paying the same premium, that would be C and D. So one of them's covered for 5.8 million, one's covered for eight. They're both paying exactly the same premium. And we've got two members with the same cover paying the same premium, but one who is potentially an impaired life. One of these members went for their medicals and was declined for the cover over 5.8 million. So this might be an impaired life, yet still paying the same premium as, as, member, uh, as member C. So this is, this is the exam question you didn't want. That part in the exams where horror of horrors, you, you had to stop doing formulae and fancy symbols and, and calculating things. And you had to start answering questions along the lines of, you know, a query has been received uh, from a member or a board director or whatever it is, um, you know, draft your response. You remember those? I mean, we, we get marks for saying, dear sir, or whatever. Yours, your, your, yours sincerely or yours faithfully. But this is the exam question you don't want. Member B gets hold of you as, your, as their trustee actuary or advisor and says, why am I paying 40% more premium when I've got the same cover? Same question comes through, why am I paying the same premium while someone's got more cover than me? How are you going to answer those questions? Um, and if you think this is uh, a hypothetical uh, example, it, it, it isn't. Um, these days with uh, consumer activism, people becoming a lot more aware of their benefits, much more exposed to through communicate, communication is a good thing, but it does allow people to, to ask these kind of questions. And I can just tell you, if, if you're in the room with someone trying to explain that they're paying the same premium, even though they've got less, less cover, it is extremely difficult to get a normal human being to accept that. And by normal human being, I'm saying so not, not one of us. It's the consumer on the outside who will look you in the face or look you in the eyes as if you just jetted in from the planet Zargon and you're talking utter rubbish. They should be paying. Uh, I, I, also, by the way, frequently, frequently now and again, members will ask, you know, before I went for my medicals, I was entitled to 8 million rand of cover. I get that and I, I was paying the premium. I went for my medicals, I've been restricted, surely I now get a lower premium. I mean, that would be a logical question for a sensible human being to ask. It's an incredibly difficult question for us to, to answer. Well, sorry, it's a very easy question for us to answer. But it's a very difficult question to convince the consumer of the, the validity of that answer. And that's the, the dreaded picture that I was referring to because this is the reaction that you'll get uh, from the actuarial profession when, when dealing with such issues. And that is, but that's the way it is. And I mean, I've heard people actually use that argument out there and say, well, your question sounds kind of valid, but, but that's the way it is. This is the way things are. And for those of you who might not recognize uh, the relevance of that picture, can anybody see the relevance of that picture? Confused you all. Sorry? Thank you so much, okay. That's a, a rock band called Status Quo. And uh, that's the point of this, that um, if, you, if you appeal to the, the way things are, the way things have always been, I think we're going to find it harder and harder to, con well, for, for harder and harder to convince people. Um, I would put it to you also that it's going to be harder and harder for us to retain credibility as a profession if we're designing products 
that have these kind of outcomes uh, when, when the members get hold of the detail. That's an example from my own practice area. I'm sure uh, in the cool of the evening, if you stop and think through your products in, in whatever area you're working in, there'll be lots of other examples that, that will come, come to your mind. Now, the problem with this is that for a long time we were regulated in a particular way and these products were designed during that period. In the TCF roadmap document of, of 2011, a, a quite different world of regulation and, and market conduct was described and laid out. And if I might say, the way the legislation is coming through is, is, is following that roadmap. And this is the problem that we've got to design products for the future while the legislation is still forming under our feet, but try to make products that will be relevant going forward. Plus, we've got the issue of uh, previously issued products that might already be giving uh, trouble under, under the roadmap. And why I particularly wanted to mention this is that there's a change in the way that the regulator sees the regulator's role going forward. So in the TCF roadmap, for example, um, it, it uses words such as um, service providers or regula regulated entities will be required to build certain features into their products. Not, it's not going to be an option. You're going to be required to do things by the new legislation. Um, and then there's other words such as, um, uh, and I think the conduct of business returns is beginning to demonstrate that that's happening, is that regulated entities will be required to demonstrate that they are complying. So it's no longer going to be enough that you think you might comply or that you could on, on inquiry um, if, if there was a breach and you were asked to, to show what your thinking was that you could show that. Um, going forward, it's going to be a case of being made to demonstrate that you are complying with this. And that's going to be a challenge, I think, uh, in many, many situations. I always worry in these situations, uh, products are there for a reason. In many cases, products have worked very well. I think you've got to be very careful what you wish for, or this would be the law of unintended consequences. I think you all know what that is. Law of unintended consequences, something is going on, you'd like it to be different, so you make a rule which would clearly have the effect of making it different, and, and lo and behold, the exact opposite happens. Uh, so I'm sure we've all come across many examples in life of the law of unintended consequences. Because if you tackle something like, just take that example I just gave you, I mean, what could happen is you could see the breakdown of a product. And the way it would logically break down would probably be to do away with the group, the group kind of basis, let it go back to an individual rating. But in the process, you would, you would lose a lot of the benefits of doing things as a group. The costs, the cost efficiencies, the operational efficiencies, um, the, the penetration of that product, which is usually provided to people on a, a, pa a passive default basis just for working somewhere, rather than individual products which tend to be bought on a, on a proactive kind of basis. So if we're not careful, you, know, you could end up uh, tackling issues around product, but end up with a worse outcome. That's the law of unintended consequences if we're not careful. So we have to be very, very wary of that, I think, and that's as much an appeal to the regulators as it is to the profession and to the regulators to keep it real and be very careful what you do uh, because it can sometimes turn out the other way. So to conclude, 
uh, we are at a point where a process of changing legislation in a very dramatic way is underway. Uh, it is not completed. It's, it's partially completed with quite a long way still to go. We have a regulator whose powers under the regulations, under the, under the regulatory framework and under the law, are becoming much more proactive. And I think that's really something I've picked up in many interactions with, with the regulatory authorities. And in fact, if you read through the, the, the coffee bill, um, it's giving direct, proactive, I mean, they, they call it, I hate this word, but they call it intrusive powers, the powers to intrude on regulated entities. That's what's going on out there. We have a profession where we've been designing products which worked in a previous regulatory environment that will be very easily challenged under the new regulatory environment while we're also still trying to design products for a still somewhat uncertain future, although if you read all the, the, the papers and everything, you'll see what, where it's all headed. Okay. Um, roughly on time. I think there's a few minutes left for questions. My name has been Neil as well, and that was my story. Thank you. Um, Neil, while we're waiting for other questions, maybe you can just uh, give the audience an update on the guidance document that uh, you are in the process of producing from the Market Conduct Committee side. Yeah, thanks for that. So, <clears throat> so I, th I think that the, yeah, so the Market Conduct Committee, one of the projects that we've got is to produce some kind of guidance for the profession on market conduct issues in this environment. I mean, I think it's, a, it's very ripe for a document like that. It, it's having a very painful birth process, I must say. There's been quite a number of, well, like I think a lot of these kind of documents go through that. A lot of iterations uh, going around it. And even debates as to what we can and can't actually say to the profession in there. Uh, you've got to be very careful. So, Neil, it's in draft. Um, we've got a meeting coming up in November. Um, and I think there's been some work done on it, done on it recently. Um, what, part of the problem is every time we, we try and do something, we all end up criticizing our own work and uh, then start starting to redraft. But I'd be hopeful that we get something out of the profession sooner rather than later on that. Any other questions? You see, it is quite nice to get the session before lunch. Great, yeah, so if there's no further questions, uh, enjoy your lunch. Uh, Neil and Neil will be here. So if you want to come and ask us other questions, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.